Welcome back to Horror Time! <laughs> Hello everyone, this is Not Ready for Rhyme Time and I'm your host Taylor Woodland. Today we are going to be doing mostly horror stories and poems and short stories because Horror Time! Woohoo! I finally did get this managed to get compiled a bit. I do apologize for missing last week. I've had a lot of wedding stuff going on, needing. I hope you understand. I am, like, making my own flower arrangements, my bridesmaids' dresses, my... Yeah, I'm a little overwhelmed. Oh, there's a lot more. Anyway, so I'm going to be reading you a bunch of horror stories today. Also, it's my birthday! Yay! I just felt like mentioning that. But whoop! happy birthday to me this weekend I actually will not I will be like at a wedding my cousin's wedding so I'll eat an extra slice of cake because he decided to have it on my birthday so yeah <laughs> I hope they have good cake it'd be sad to have bad cake on your birthday anywho let's get right on into some horror poems these next two poems are by Joe Duncombe from his book of poetry he plans to publish called Reflections of Fear. The first one is called A Skeleton in the Closet. A Skeleton in the Closet There's a skeleton in my closet. He's been hanging there all day. There's a skeleton in my closet. He's been waiting just to say. Why do you keep me locked here? Was killing me not enough? Please, do stop this torture. My bones are not so tough. End of poem. The next poem is called Matchbox. Matchbox. Wooden beams turn cinder. Dark ash covers my hair. The screaming stopped some time ago. I dropped my matchbox somewhere. End of poem. That was a couple little horror, horror poems for you from Joe Duncombe from his book he plans to publish, Reflections of Fear. Thank you, Joe, for submitting, and we'll move right on into the next poem. This next horror poem is not titled. It is by Anthony Gallagher. As my body nears exhaustion, in need of rest, the anxiety builds, my body begins to stress. Fear of the coming nightmares flood my consciousness. My eyes close and my subconscious is awakened. The ensuing horrors take over. Death, rage, regret, pain and anguish cascade my mind. Scenes of death and horror start to take their toll, chipping away at my mind and soul. My breathing heavy as this nightmare wears away at my sanity. I awaken with dread, tears and anxiety. This is the reoccurring nightmare of a dead man. End of poem. That was a poem by Anthony Gallagher. Thank you, Anthony, for submitting, and we'll move on into our next submission. This next poem was submitted by Neiltro. It is called The Vampire's Prayer. The Vampire's Prayer Master, you have blessed me, perching me high upon the chain, burning the fear from my heart, so more knowledge could be gained. 
You have freed me from my mortal cage, fed me with a primal rage, and in return I use your power to harvest souls that will not cower. Master, you have blessed me, protecting me from the sun's spark, giving me refuge from the ignorance of man in the tranquility of the dark. You allow me to see all the pain that is shared. You allow me to see the ones to be spared. You gave me the tools I need to feed. You have given sweet fragrance to their greed. Master, you have blessed me, appointing me as your scythe of wrath to strike down those who have lost their path. You have given me passion in the form of thirst, a strong sense of purpose for destroying the cursed. You have given me strength from their blood and their tears, and you give me more strength as I feast on their fears. Master, you have blessed me by giving me to earth. Lord, you have blessed me. You have blessed me with your curse. End of poem. That was The Vampire's Prayer by Niltro. Thank you for submitting, and we will move right on into our next submission. That was our final poem for the poetry section. With that, we will move on into our short stories. Thank you to all our poets who submitted. This next short story is called Reflections by Rick Step Balling. Reflections. I don't believe in magic, but I do believe in strange occurrences. That would pretty much sum up my feelings about what happened in John Sanders' field. Strange, bordering on just plain bizarre. Yesterday, the field held a herd of about 50 jerseys. Tonight, there's a carnival or circus of some sort planted in the middle of John's 30 acres. No flyers, no ads in the paper, no one saying anything about a troop of carnies and freaks coming to Grissom Landing. And in a town where everyone knows everything about anything, well, that's just weird. But as I say, I don't believe in the supernatural. So I'm on my way to find out for myself what's going on. From the last sunrise on Sanders Dirt Road off Route 90, I can make out the layout of the carnival. A series of low-lying dark tints dot the field with large, brightly colored rides toward the back of the field. In the middle of the field lies a dome-shaped building with a circular ramp wrapping around the outside. The entire complex is surrounded by a ten-foot wall constructed of fabric of some kind. Nothing out of the ordinary, except there's no sound. No music, no loud barkers, no screaming kids, but plenty of cars. As a matter of fact, half of Grissom Landing must be parked below. I find a spot away from the other cars and park my 65 caddy. No sense risking a door ding. Putting my sweatshirt hood up, I make my way to the front. There's no booth to buy a ticket. A man dressed in dingy pants, a greasy flannel shirt, and a faded baseball cap stands at the entrance. He smiles with yellow teeth when I approach. Do I get a ticket from you? I notice he's missing several teeth, and his bottom cheek bulges. I hold out a tin spot for him, thinking it should be enough. He eyes the tin. You Hank Evans, he whispers, although it comes out more like a hiss. How'd you know? I ask, still holding the tin. He shrugs at my question. No charge for Hank Evans. He takes off his cap and waves me in. I stuff the tin in my pocket and go through the turnstile. No sense ignoring a gift horse. Maybe someone covered for me. 
Once I entered the grounds, I'm assaulted with screaming little kids and crowd noises everywhere. Families wander like nomads from booth to booth, children pulling on their mother's hands toward the bright lights of the carny rides and ice cream stands. Barkers stand on wooden chairs, enticing passers-by like sirens to their games of chance. Hank! Jim Lorraby bumps me with his shoulder. Didn't know you were coming or I would have hitched a ride. Jim and I work at the mill together, and we've been friends since grade school. How'd you find out about this? I asked, motioning toward the scene in front of us. The carnival? Riley said something was happening at Sanders Ranch, so we drove over. Jim looks as excited as a ten-year-old. His wide eyes shine, and he can't keep from smiling. How'd Riley find out? Didn't say. Maybe the boys at the mill told him. Yeah, maybe. I'm not convinced. What about the rest of town? Seems like everyone's here. Was there a flyer? Did the carnies come through town? Jim considers that a moment, his eyes searching the night sky. No, no flyer. Hey, what does it matter? Let's go throw some darts at balloons. They've got a booth where you throw a basketball, and if you hit one of the stuffed dolls on the rack, you win a giant pink panther. What am I going to do with a giant pink panther? A grin returns to Jim's face. Give it to Heather. I bet she'd like it. I thrust my hands into my rear pockets. A cold, windless air sends a shiver through me. I mentally kick myself for leaving my jacket in the caddy. Heather and I broke up last night, I tell him. Jim's grin disappears. Broke up? Man, that sucks. She's the real deal. There's an exotic smell in the air that catches my attention. It hints of cinnamon and some other spice I can't remember. A flap from the tent opens. A woman exits draped in veils and dressed in sheer fabric that clings to her body and flows behind her like smoke. She drifts toward me, her eyes never leaving me. I think she's going to keep walking, seeing someone behind me. I turn. There's no one there. So you're Hank. It's not a question. A gust of wind leaves her veil, and I see impossible green eyes staring at me so intently I almost feel like some kind of prey. I've never seen someone so... so wild before. It takes my breath away. Celestial Raven, she offers me her hand. Jim hits me with his shoulder again, and I realize I have her hand in mine, but I'm not shaking it. Flustered, I release her, although every atom in my being tells me not to. Yeah... He's Hank, Jim says for me. Gotta go, man. I gotta try some rides. Maybe I'll see you later. I nod and raise my hand in a lame goodbye. It's hard to concentrate with all my senses diverted. Finally, I manage. How come everyone knows my name around here? I can see her smile through her veil, even though her veil hides all but the slightest bit of her luminescence. Quint, the man at the entrance, said you were coming. She says it as though it clarifies everything. The wind picks up again, and cinnamon mixed with... with... I'm sorry, did you say something, I ask? Nothing important, she says, waving her hand. Here, allow me to show you around. For a moment, I think she'll take my hand, but she simply turns and walks toward the tent with the open flap. When I follow her in, she reaches behind me and loosens the flap's tie. Everything goes dark. Then I hear a snap of her fingers, and the interior fills with light. She leads me to the middle of the tent, although it is so bright I can't see the boundaries. 
Just Celestial Raven, who trails wisps of smoke behind her. What did you do to your hands? She asks casually. I remember too late that I held her hand. I stuffed my hands into my sweatshirt pockets. Got into a fight with a wall, I say trying to focus on anything else in the room but her eyes. That must have hurt. They're quite bruised. Perhaps I can help. My hands go deeper into my pockets until I can feel the raw skin against cotton. I'm fine. Pain should never be experienced alone, she says. But it makes so no sense to me. Here, place your hands in this pool. She guides me to a large pool of liquid that I swear was not there before. The water has healing properties. Her hand reaches into my sweatshirt and gently takes my hand out of my pocket. She places it into the water for several seconds, maybe minutes. I'm not sure because I'm feeling like time has stopped. When she lifts my hand out of the water, the bruises have disappeared, the scabby rawness now replaced by a new growth of skin. She still holds my hand, turning it over and inspecting it with her green eyes. Yes, there was a good deal of pain. She releases my right hand and reaches in to take my left hand. You should avoid fighting walls in the future. I let her dip my swollen left hand into the water and I experience that sense of timelessness again. When she lifts it from the pool, the hand is healed. What kind of water is that? I asked. It's a curative. Very ancient. Very powerful. Very dangerous. Again, she studies my hand, caressing my fingers and turning them over in her hand. Did you come here tonight to be cured? I wipe my hands on my jeans. Even the bone in my pinky I broke playing high school basketball is straightened. Cured? No, I wasn't looking for a cure. To be honest, people are talking about your carnival. They're saying something supernatural must be involved. I mean, because you're here and you weren't here yesterday. I just came to prove them wrong. I see. Celestial Raven walks to the opposite side of the pool and lets her hand linger in the water, slowly swirling it while she talks. Once, a long, long time ago, I didn't believe in the mysterious properties of the universe. I was young, of course, and as a young girl, my eyes were still shut, still empty of any visions except those in front of me. What I couldn't see didn't exist, and what I did see was only the smallest, most closed part of everything. I crack a grin and give her a brief chuckle. That I understand. Grissom Landing isn't exactly the center of the world. She looks at me with her wild green eyes, and I take a step backwards. Today it is, she says. I wait for her to smile, but she doesn't offer one. This, I say, indicating the room we're in, this is the center of the world. The center of the universe, actually, she adds. Okay, beautiful or not, this is one crazy woman. I decide to take it one step further before I leave. And what happens at the center of this so-called universe? What's so special about Grissom Landing that your carnival has decided to set up shop here in Sanders' pasture? Makes no sense to me, unless, of course, you're off your meds. This time she smiles, but it is a deprecating smile without warmth or compassion. Everything is revealed here. All pain, all injustices, all crimes, all good deeds. Retribution is addressed. Virtue is rewarded. Oh, this isn't a carnival, then. This is the pearly gates, and you must be St. Peter. 
Lady, you might be able to fool the good people of Grissom Landing, but your carny act is just that. An act. I'm ready to leave, but the exotic spice wafts into the room. This can't be, since there isn't any opening and no fans or air conditioning. Then cinnamon overtakes me, and I travel back in time to when my grandmother is making Christmas buns rich with cinnamon and brown sugar. My mouth waters at the prospect. My stomach growls in anticipation. How are the hands feeling, she asks. Her voice is a soft purr, and I have to strain to hear her. Hands? I stare numbly at the appendages with five digits attached to my arms. Fine. They feel fine. And did you repair the wall? Wall? Brilliant flicks of green explode from behind her eyes, but it's only a moment, and the moment is soon gone. Did you repair the damage? She asks. To the wall. No. I see. Well, there's one last thing I'd like to show you before you visit the zone. The zone? I feel stupid repeating her, but there's so much here I don't understand. That's what we call the area where the rides and games are located. I believe that's where your friend wanted to meet you. She stops swirling the water with her fingers, and when the ripples ebb, I see her reflection in the pool. But it isn't her. It can't be her. She plunges her hand into the water and playfully throws a handful at me. The reflection is gone. The fun house. I wanted to take you to the funhouse before you leave. It's our most popular attraction. You may have noticed it before you entered. It looks like a giant eyeball with a spiral staircase surrounding it. A picture of the strange building clicks on in my memory. I can't think of a reason not to see it, but a part of me shudders at the thought. Sure, I manage. Let's go to the funhouse. Celestial Raven lifts her arm, bidding me to follow. The flap at the other end of the tent is open. It wasn't before. Another carny act. She's good. A little loony, but good. Outside the crowds have disappeared. The noise, too. I want to ask Celestial where everyone has gone, but she walks ahead, trailing her vaporous veils like a comet. It doesn't take long. The eyeball, as she calls it, rises above the other structures in the pasture. I'm wondering how they constructed such a mammoth building overnight. It's another question that goes unanswered. Celestial suddenly stops and swirls towards me. Have you ever been to a funhouse before? As a kid, I went to one. My parents took me to the county fair and forced me into the funhouse. I was young. It scared me. No, I answer. Nothing like this. There is nothing like this, she says. I must leave you here, but I'll be back when you return. Just climb the steps, and when you reach the top, the door will open. What's in it, I ask? That's for you to find out. I shrug, and my fingers find the railing. I turn to ask her about the missing people, but she's vanished. Another act. The steps clang loudly when I climb, and the railing is cold. Soon I reach the top, the solid-looking door in front of me. I pause to get a view of the carnival below. An icy shiver rolls down my back and into my arms. There is nothing but pasture land. Overhead, the second moon is just reaching its zenth. The door in front of me slides to the side, and a blast of warm air hits me. I take a tentative step inside, and the door slides shut behind me. It's dark inside, so I wait for my eyes to adjust. There are vague shapes all around me, but I can't make them out. Then lights come. 
I find myself standing in the middle of a thousand reflections. There are mirrors everywhere. I look for the door, but it too has vanished. There is nothing in the room but me. Hundreds and hundreds of me. In the mirror to my right is me at sixteen. I recognize my favorite shirt, but it's now covered in blood. Next to that mirror is a reflection of a young boy. It was the day I was caught shooting our neighbor's cat with my air rifle. To the left is a me graduating from high school. I'm dressed in a cap and gown. My knuckles are raw and bleeding, but I wear a sly grin. I turn again and find me from yesterday. My hands are bruised, my eyes are blurry and unfocused. Overhead, an image of a snarling beast stares down at me with ferocious green eyes. I can almost hear its growls coming through the mirror. Then the reflections change. Each mirror now contains the same beast, an animal clawing at its frozen prison trying to break free. I feel the same rage come to life inside of me. I want to break the mirrors. I want to free the beast. I look for something to throw, some weapon I can use, but there is nothing, only my fists. I charge the mirror and throw my fists against the image. The mirror shatters into a thousand shards. Bits of reflected me fly by and clatter onto the floor. Then, as if the beasts have been given their freedom, all the mirrors splinter, creating a storm of shattered glass, filling the room in a storm of fragmented hanks. They swirl and gather, spin and strike. I feel the glass hit me, shred me, cut me apart. Darkness comes. Three throws for a dollar. You hit the doll, you win one of these life-size pink panthers. The voice comes from a game, Carney. It's loud and shrill. I want to cover my ears, but I can't. How about you, young lady? Want to try your luck? The Carney forces three baseballs into a woman's hands. It's difficult to recognize her. Her face is puffy and covered in deep blue bruises. She gives the Carney a tin spot and takes the first three balls. She doesn't throw like a girl. She winds up and heaves the ball like she knows what to do. The first ball misses, but I feel the wind and the sound of it whizzing by my ear. She grins. The second pitch hits my cheek and breaks a bone. The pain radiates through my head. If I could scream, I would. But all I can do is watch as she bounces the next ball in her hand. End of story. That was Reflections by Rick Step Balling. Thank you for this story. That was a lot of fun to read. <laughs> I liked the turnabout at the end. It was quite entertaining. Thank you, Rick, for submitting your story. And with that, we'll move right on into our next submission. We're keeping the short story section pretty short today, no pun intended. And with that, we'll get right on into our author feature of this episode. I'll be featuring the book A Love Haunting by Susie Albrocht. The synopsis on Amazon goes as such. I am a dead guy. My wife... Emily is a living, breathing, alive person. There is still something I need from Emily. One last kiss goodbye. When I was alive, it seemed like I was blessed with a guardian angel. For instance, after my parents were murdered, I was taken in by a loving couple who embraced me as their own. Then, when I was a goofy teenager doing goofy things, sweet Emily took my hand and together we grew up. And when I struggled in med school and felt like quitting, a mentor took me under his wing. 
With his encouragement, I went on to become an up-and-coming heart surgeon. But when the accident took my life, it seemed there was no one looking out for me. I wasn't saved. Alrighty, with that, guys, we'll get right on into our author feature. A Love Haunting by Susie Albrecht Chapter 1 Every woman needs a man who will love them to the end of time. A man who puts her needs before his. A man who takes her breath away with a single glance. A man who will do whatever it takes to have a last goodbye kiss. What do you have there, baby? Jordan Snow took his eyes off the road for a brief second to glance at his wife, Emily. Her ooing sounds had grabbed his curiosity, but Jordan didn't need an excuse to gaze at Emily. From the little bump on the bridge of her nose to her svelte calves, he loved looking at his wife. The Christmas ornament I bought today for our new baby. Isn't it beautiful? Jordan quickly glanced at the shiny bauble she dangled between them. Blue? What if it's a girl? Giggling, Emily slipped another ornament from the bag on her lap. I know, right? I bought two. Her squeal of delight made him want to stop the car and kiss her. Is it wrong to love your wife that much? Pink and blue. Good thinking, little one, Jordan chuckled. Emily pushed her blonde hair back behind one ear and held the blue bauble in front of her. Now we'll have a keepsake for our baby's first Christmas. I know someone who can engrave it for us once we pick a name. And what about the ornament we don't use? Maybe we'll use it for baby number two. Baby number two, huh? Then I guess that means we have a plan. Squeezing Emily's hand, he asked, Did you have a good vacation? Emily leaned in, laying her head on her husband's shoulder and wrapping an arm around his. I had the best time ever. I'm so glad we got to see one last sunset as a couple. The next time we come down for vacation, there will be three of us. Jordan brought Emily's fingers to his lips and kissed them. His wife was wearing that orchid-colored nail polish that reminded him of the silk sheets waiting for them at home. It was perfect, wasn't it? You better check your seatbelt. Wouldn't want anything to happen our, to our little baby. Yes, sir, Mr. Snow, Emily saluted Jordan. He shook his head, laughing. Girl, what am I going to do with you? Jordan asked, getting a giggle out of his wife. Are you excited about starting your internship on Monday? I so can't believe you're finally going to be a surgeon. Emily's voice was excited, pleasing Jordan. Let's hope I don't wet my pants my first day, Jordan said, his voice solemn, sparking an eye roll from Emily. I keep pinching myself because I'm sure I'm dreaming. Jordan gave a quick glance toward Emily, his grin conveying all the love he had in his heart for her before turning back to concentrate on his driving. He was determined to get his wife and soon-to-be-newborn home to Annapolis before daybreak. Jordan couldn't wait for the next phase of their lives to begin. Meanwhile... Six miles away, an old Ford Fairlane station wagon with dirty tinted windows and a plastering of band promotion stickers across the back window came rumbling out of a side road with tires spitting gravel. The clunker turned onto the highway with a jolt. 
Inside, five boys and four girls, all between the ages of 14 and 19, were packed in like sardines, either squeezed against each other or sitting on laps. They had left a kegger a few minutes earlier and were hurrying home to meet their curfews. Traveling at over 60 miles per hour, the station wagon drifted over the center lane as the driver, Chad Rivers, leaned over to grab the cigarette he dropped on the car's floor. Next to him, his best friend, Rick Anderson, paid no attention to Chad as he rooted around his feet for the lit butt. Instead, Rick twisted in his seat to see what the others were doing in the back seat. Wanting to be the center of attention, he took off his seat belt and got up on his knees, facing the others. Rick leaned over the back of his seat and began to belt out the lyrics to the hard rock song on the radio. Soon, the others in the back seat joined in. No one was paying attention to the road as they careened into the other lane. Emily saw the station wagon first. She screamed and grabbed onto Jordan's arm, pointing at the station wagon, racing toward them in their lane. Jordan, look out! Inside the station wagon, Chad Rivers finally snatched his cigarette from the floor and, without looking at the road, turned to laugh at something happening behind him. The clunker was now a hundred percent in the wrong lane. No one in the station wagon noticed the shiny red sports car they were about to slam into. Holy crap! Jordan could see right away it was going to be too late to avoid all contact. He gritted his teeth as he twisted the Camaro's wheel, making a hard left, desperate to avoid a head-on collision. At the last second, the station wagon clipped the right front bumper of the Camaro, sending it flying off the road. Because the impact was a glancing blow to their fender and the alcohol was still working its way through their bloodstreams, none of the teenagers saw or experienced the hit. But it was enough to send the Camaro rocketing past some trees lining the road and flying down a steep embankment. Inside the car, as it barreled down the embankment, Jordan and Emily turned toward each other, locking eyes. It was out of their hands now, and they knew it. Jordan put one hand out to protect his wife and child. Emily lost the ability to scream. She froze, her eyes wide with panic. Their bodies slammed back and forth in the Camaro in spite of the seat belts. The cherished Christmas ornaments slammed against the windshield, shattering and sending shards of glass into the air. Jordan's head banged against the window on the driver's door. Emily's head snapped back, burrowing into her headrest. Grabbing the sides of the headrest, Emily held herself stiff against the seat. At the bottom of the embankment, the Camaro landed on its nose and flipped over onto its roof, crashing through some weeds until it slid into the ditch wall of the culvert, coming to a crashing halt. After the crash, it was eerily quiet, except a clicking noise coming from the Camaro's engine and the sound of the station wagon's broken muffler as it sputtered and drove away. Out on the highway, Chad finally turned around and steered the car back into the correct lane. Oblivious to the accident, most likely because he was drunk, Chad focused on getting home in one piece. End of chapter one. Chapter 2 Sometime after the accident, muddy water from the ditch seeped into the Camaro through the crushed door frames and body of the car. The murky liquid covered the headliner. Shredded blades of 
grass and shattered pieces of ornaments floated in the silty water streaked with blood and human matter. Inside the Camaro, the occupants were unconscious and not moving. After several minutes, Jordan awakened, confused and disoriented. A wave of dread floated over him as scenes from the accident flashed before him. The silence was deafening. Jordan's eyes scanned his surroundings. He could see he was upside down, still strapped in his seat. He also noticed something else. He had no physical sensations of pain or even discomfort. He knew he should feel something since he and Emily had both been tossed around in their seats like a popcorn in a hot pan. Ignoring his lack of sensation for a moment, he could see that one of his arms hung lifelessly at his side. His other arm was entwined in Emily's seatbelt, caught between her and the deploying airbag. His own airbag had not inflated. Jordan's first semi-rational thought after coming to was that he was going to sue the crap out of somebody over his faulty airbag. I could have slammed my chest into the steering wheel. Jordan tried to move his free arm, but his body refused to obey. He tried again and again with no success. Maybe I'm paralyzed. No, that can't be. I just have to make up my mind to find a way to unbuckle my seatbelt. Emily needs my help. Then something happened that blew his mind. One minute he was trying to figure out how to get a seatbelt unbuckled without his hands, and the next he found himself standing outside the car. Whoa, how did I get out here? He glanced down at his hands and legs, only to see himself floating several inches above the ground. He couldn't see his feet because a pool of mist surrounded them. Oh crap, what's going on? Jordan bent over and looked directly at the passenger seat where Emily had been seated. He couldn't see if she was alright because the position of the airbag blocked his view. He figured he would have to go to the other side of the car to get a better look at her. As Jordan pulled back to go to the other side, his eyes slid back across the driver's seat. He could see a body strapped in the driver's seat, hanging upside down. Jordan's eyes moved up to the head. The entire side of the forehead was crushed. Broken shards of bone protruded from the wound. Blood from the gaping wound dripped into the water beneath the body. Jordan moved to get a closer look at the face. He flew backward into the weeds, screaming and clawing at his clothes. Within seconds, Jordan mentally chastised himself to get a grip. He told himself he was the only one who could provide any kind of help to Emily and himself. Mentally slapping his face, Jordan told himself that he had to buck up and get over there to take another look. He crept back to the driver's window and forced himself to gaze inside. There was no mistake. The body strapped in that driver's seat was his, and that was his face with eyes half open, eyes of the dead. Sweet Mary, how can that be me? I had my seatbelt on. Jordan shoved the idea that he was dead to the back of his mind for the moment and floated to the other side of the car. Emily was facing the door. He could immediately see that she was unconscious. Her eyes were closed and her nostrils fluttered with each labored breath she took. While there appeared to be some bruising on Emily's face, there was no blood dripping from her head or upper body. He reached for the door, intending to attend to her wounds, only to see his hand go right through the handle of the door and inside the car. What the? Jordan pulled his hand back and tried again. 
This time, his arm went clean through the door all the way to his elbow. He took a few steps back and stared, first at his arm and then the car door. From out of nowhere, a plump vulture swooped down, landing on one of the Camaro's tires, not three feet away. Jordan made a shooing motion and attempted to shout at the bird, except no sound came out of him. The vulture went about its business as if no one was there. Jordan tried again to shoo the bird away. The creature behaved as if it couldn't hear or see him. I must be dead. No, that can't be. Wouldn't I have gone into that light? Get a grip, man. You stared at your own dead face not five minutes ago. Jordan fell backwards into the weeds. Harsh realities were assailing him, left and right. He didn't want to believe he was dead. He couldn't be dead. The first day of his medical internship was on Monday. I'm going to be a surgeon saving lives. I can't be dead. Not now. And Emily. They had celebrated their one-year anniversary while on vacation. Who was going to father his child for him? I'm 26, for goodness sake. I have a full life ahead of me. He snapped to attention. The baby! Jordan rushed back to the car and pushed his head into the Camaro. He could see blood on Emily's legs and on the car seat. As Jordan watched, Emily's breathing worsened. All signs indicated that if he didn't do something very soon, she was going to die. He had to get out on the highway to get help. As fast as he could, he floated to the top of the embankment. Moving to the side of the highway, he searched for cars or trucks. Where is everyone? Come on, a car, a truck, a bicycle, a hitchhiker. Somebody's got to come by here. But it was late at night and traffic was non-existent at that hour. To complicate matters, even if a car did show up, Jordan didn't know how far he could get with his fog feet. He decided he would stand in the middle of the road and wait to flag down anyone who happened to come by. He just hoped that he wasn't one of those invisible ghosts. Two hours later, just as Jordan was about to admit defeat and return to Emily's side, a miracle occurred. Headlights approached in the distance. End of chapter two. End of excerpt. That was the end of our excerpt from the book A Love Haunting by Susie Albrook. You can check it out on Amazon and see if Emily lives or not. It currently has four and a half stars. I will leave a link to that in the timestamp of the podcast. Thank you, Susie, for submitting to the podcast and letting me read some of your book. And with that, guys, that ends our final feature of this podcast. Thank you again so much to our poets, short story writer, and our author for submitting. I will have more for you next week. I've already got a bunch of that pre-recorded, thankfully, so I won't be late next week again. And happy birthday to me again. <laughs> this has been Not Ready for Rhyme Time, and I have been your host, Taylor Woodland. Remember, mind the gap.